2: Listener discretion is advised. Hello and welcome to True Crime, the podcast that helps you find new, emerging, and undiscovered true crime podcasts. I'm Greg, the host and curator of True Crime. Continuing on with our special holiday week of episodes, today's episode is from What Was That Like? What Was That Like? features real people in unreal situations. This episode is a doozy, It's a Christmas-related episode, and if you've never heard what was that like, I think you're going to be pretty impressed with this show. If you like today's episode, make sure to check out the episode description for links to subscribe. All right, let's get this show started. Begin.
3: The subway system in New York City is pretty impressive. It opened in 1904, so it's one of the oldest subway systems in the world, and it's definitely the largest with 472 stations. And throughout its history, the New York City subway has offered service 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, almost continuously. The exceptions are usually emergencies and disasters, such as 9-11. You want to take a guess as to how many people ride the subway on an average weekday? Go ahead, think of a number. Okay. It's 5.6 million people per day. The subway system can be a little scary sometimes, but most of the time it's safe. It's just a large crowd of individual people, each one needing to get from one location to another location. Many of them will have earbuds in or be engrossed in a book or a newspaper, mostly unaware of what's going on around them. What you're going to hear today is my conversation with Danny. Back when this happened, he lived in New York City with his partner, Pete. In fact, they still live there. Danny was one of those people on the subway, head down, in a hurry because he was running late, just wanted to get off the train and up to the street. But on this day, he happened to notice something on the floor near the stairs. It was a baby. Real people in unreal situations.
1: There is a man standing in front of me in my bedroom. My
0: friend has been shot. I'm in the literally inside the river, and I'm inside my car. He
4: had told me multiple times that he was going to set himself on fire.
3: If you say my name or try to look at me, I'm gonna
0: kill you.
4: And he was just sobbing. He said, "Mom, mom, tell me you're gonna be okay." And
0: I jumped on the hood of the car, and I held on.
1: And I looked into the garage and he was hanging from the rafters.
2: I had somebody standing on my neck. He's better to me dead. I want him dead.
3: I'm Scott Johnson and this is What Was That Like? You and your partner, Pete, were living in New York City at the time. Which borough did you live in?
1: We lived in Manhattan um, and we, we have lived in the same neighborhood since that time it is the neighborhood of chelsea and bordering the west village we had met in 1997 july of 1997 Uh, so by this time in 2000 we had been together just a little over three years so we had a you know pretty good rhythm of our relationship we maintained had separate apartments, but we ended up spending most of our time at Pete's apartment. At the time, he had a roommate, and so we made an <laughs> we had an, a, an agreement that since I was spending most of my time there, that we would split the rent three ways between the three of us, and that I would sublet my apartment. And um, we kind of had that arrangement for about a, you know, a year prior. To this time, starting in 1999, I'm a social worker. I have been doing social work for since I've been in New York, and I moved in, to New York in 1994. Pete was, um, and still is, a presentation designer, where he works and has worked for probably close to 30 years with a pharmaceutical advertising agency now he does um he's freelance but he still works for pharmaceutical advertising agencies doing uh presentation design basically for new uh, new drugs that are coming out
3: here in florida if we want to go somewhere you know i go and get in my car and go in new york city it's very common to use public transportation all the time subway taxi that kind of thing do you guys even have cars (laughs)
1: We used to. We had a car for 17 years. (laughs) We loved that car. It was just to be able to get us around. And it lasted us for a very long time. So it was really sad when we finally gave it up. We parked it on the street. So moving it and finding parking spots in New York and Manhattan... Is never easy, and it would always be a frustrating process of driving around and around the neighborhood, finding a spot—that one spot that hopefully you know no one beat you to it.
3: Well, let's talk about that day. You were actually on the subway that day.
1: Where were you headed,
3: and what happened?
1: This was August 28, two thousand. Pete and I had made arrangements to have a dinner date that night, so I was. Working late, actually, I had I was um, I should have already left by the time I was running late, and I it was a night that I was going up to my apartment, my apartment that I had was up in Harlem, and even though I had a tenant that or you know somebody was subleasing for me, we had an arrangement where I would go up you know once a week to get my mail. All my things were still there, so I would get mail maybe a few. You know, clothes change out. So this particular night, I had arranged that I would go pick up my mail. It's about a thirty more so minute train ride from where I was working up to my apartment. So I was, like I said, I was running late to begin with. So my hope was that I could get in and out of my apartment, and then I was thinking, well, maybe I can catch an express train so I can save a few minutes. So I'm not going to be so late and I was like, oh, I can transfer to a, from the local train to an express train at 59th Street. That didn't happen. Um, I stayed on the local, uh, so I continued to be late. It was approximately, it was close to 8 o'clock that night. I think we probably had dinner arrangements for 7.30, so I was, I was well late by this time.
3: So you were kind of in a rush.
1: I was in a rush. Yeah, I was, you know, I knew that, one, that we we were, I was running late, but also Pete tends to get impatient when, you know, not sticking to the schedule. So I was just trying to be mindful of that so he wouldn't get too angry. As I was exiting the station, and now this this was the 14th Street station or the ACE line. And the, the exit that I would always go through was at 15th Street. And so, 15th Street was an exit only. So, you couldn't enter. You could only exit at that time. So, I was going through the station, going through the gate. I noticed on the ground to my left against the wall was a bundle. And, you know, in my mind, I'm thinking, oh, it, it, and all I saw was two little legs sticking out. It looked like adult so i'm thinking some little girl left her doll on the ground and i was like oh you know wonder if she's around but i continue to walk and i'm starting to go up the stairs to exit to the outside and i glance back one more time and when i did his legs moved so i knew it wasn't a doll and i rushed down the stairs uh, i loosened this dark sweatshirt that he was wrapped up in, made sure he was breathing okay. Uh, I could tell, I mean, he had no clothes on, but I could tell that it was an infant. It was, uh, he was newborn. I didn't know exactly how old he was at the time, but he still had, uh, the reason why he was in, I knew he was a newborn, because he still had the umbilical cord, was still partially intact, so it had been cut, but it had been, I could tell that it was a relatively new baby. I'm thinking like, how could this be? How could there be a baby on the ground? And I'm I'm thinking, is the mother around? Is there somebody around that knows what's going on? I tried to alert other passengers that may have be going through the station. And by this time, you know, it was eight o'clock, it was past rush rush hour. There weren't a lot of people going through, particularly there weren't a very there wasn't anybody going through this the exit that I was going through. But I I, would, I managed to get the attention of one woman that was walking by and I was like alerting, I, I was like, there's a baby right here. Found out she did not speak any English and she didn't understand what I was saying, but I was point motioning to the baby, and I think that she got nervous and she backed away and just laughed really quickly. I tried to, you know, yell to like to notify. The, this was before the new, the Metro card system that, that's in New York City right now. And so the subway operated on subway tokens. So I, since I wanted someone to uh, notify the, the token booth attendant so that they could notify the authorities or call the police. So that wasn't happening. Then I thought, Oh, there's a payphone right upstairs on the street. This was before, you know, I had a cell phone. I, I thought, I was going, I'm, going to, I'm going to call the police. So I ran up the stairs to that payphone, and I called 911, and I said, I found a baby. I told him where I was located, and then I ran back down to the steps. I didn't pick the baby up because I wasn't sure if he had been injured in any way. So I didn't want to cause any further injury by picking him up. So I left him there, and then I went back down to be with them and waiting for the police. And I was thinking it's just taking forever. And I'm sure that I mean, for me, time was standing still. So it may have only been minutes, but it felt like hours. And then I had a thought, it's like, oh, they probably think it's a prank call. So that's the reason why they're not coming. So I felt in my pocket and I had a quarter. So I was like, okay, I need to call somebody else. So I thought of Pete. So it's was like, I, if I call Pete, he can call the police, and they'll believe him, and they'll send they'll send um, the police. So I ran back up to that payphone, and I called Pete, and I blurted out, "I found a baby," and I said, "That I don't think they believed me. I don't think that they. I think they thought it was a prank call. So if you call, they'll believe you, and they'll come." While I was on the phone with him, that's when. The police showed up, so I, I hung up the phone really quickly and went over to the police car as they were getting out of the car.
3: And he must have been, I mean, you had to hang up so quickly, he had to be completely confused. What
1: in the world is going on, right? He was. I mean, he he was asking me, it's like, where are you? Where are you? And and I i told him, it's like, I'm, I'm at 15th Street and 8th Avenue. Uh, send the police. And, I, and then I, you know, as they were showing up, I, I was just like, they're here. So I just hung up. But I'm sure he was. I mean, I don't. I don't know if he knew. Maybe he even believed me.
3: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Danny's running late. He's come up with this crazy story. This is like a Seinfeld episode or something, <laughs> right?
1: <laughs> yeah, it was. Uh, you know, it was completely bizarre.
3: And I wanted to hear from Pete what it was like to get that phone call. Here's Pete.
0: When I picked up the phone, I was expecting him to tell me that he was you know, we had a dinner date that night and I was expecting to tell me that he was going to be even later than what he already was. And so I was at home waiting for him. I was hungry. So I don't know if you've ever heard of the term hangry. So I was hungry and angry. And so when I picked up the phone, I was expecting him to say, I'm going to be later. And I was expecting him to get angry at him. And then he just blurted out, I found a baby. And his tone was so panicked that I knew that, and he doesn't joke around, he's usually very calm, that I knew he was dead serious. And I, I just said, where are you? And he said, I called 911. He kept repeating himself, I called 911, but I don't think they believed me. I said, where are you? Where are you? Where are you? And he said, I'm at the subway station at 15th Street and 8th Avenue. Can you call 911? I said, well, I'm just going to come down there. Uh, it'd be easier for me to probably find some help on the street. There was always a cop car or a police on the sidewalks in that neighborhood all the time. So I figured it would just be easier to do that. So I ran down there. And by the time I got there, the police, the authorities had arrived. Danny was standing at the top of the steps and he just sort of, I said, where's the baby? And he you know, just gestured with his head um, to the steps. And at that moment, two police officers were walking up and one of them was holding the baby in his arms. He was still in shock when I, when I got there and he was like, not saying much. He was just sort of like, gesturing, small gestures, but he didn't really say much. He was just still sort of um, processing it all, I think.
1: So when the police showed up, they wanted me to tell them what happened. And I first I had to show them where the baby was, was at. So we, we went down those stairs again to where he, he was. And then I went back up and they wanted me to wait. They said, don't leave, just wait right here. And so I waited as they were bringing um, the baby up, they were holding him. In their arms, that's when Pete ran, uh, was running down the street, and he came up at just as they were coming out from the station. It quickly became a scene that not only were that those two police officers that arrived, but probably like a half a dozen other police cars showed up. They quickly put police tape around the whole area, and then detectives showed up, and they told me, he's like, you cannot leave. And so, I had to stay there for two hours as they, one by one, interviewed me to tell exactly what had happened, why was I there, the circumstances that led me to find the baby, and anything else that I may have noticed. So, that process took about a couple of hours.
3: And Pete was there during that time, right?
1: Pete was there, um, although they um, they would always pull me away, so he wasn't able to listen to me telling the story as a new detective would show up they was like okay come over here I have you know I have some questions for you and they would pull me away from him and then I would you know tell the story and you know at some point Pete says to me he's like I think you're going to be connected to this baby for the rest of your life and I had no idea what he was talking about I, I said what do you mean he's like well you know Maybe not tonight, maybe not tomorrow, maybe not even next year, but eventually this baby is going to know what happened tonight, and he's going to want to know, he's, he may want to meet the, the person that found him. And I said, oh, okay. And said, well, maybe what we can do is we can send a, a birthday card every day on this year, if, you know, if we find out where he happens to be placed or who he gets adopted by. And I said, that sounds like a really great idea. Uh, You know, I'm still, I'm still probably in a state of shock. And of course we're still hungry. (laughs) And eventually the police, the detectives say, okay, you're free to go. And by this time it's about 10 o'clock at night. So we both go to a restaurant that's about a block away from there. One of our, at the time, one of our favorite Mexican restaurants. And we sit down and first thing we do is order a margarita.
3: And, of course, no matter what time of the day or night, there's going to be a place to go find something to eat in New York.
1: Yes, yeah, yeah. Uh, and I was still in a state of shock, and Pete wasn't quite – he still hadn't heard the complete story. And so he, he was asking, me, so what happened? And I didn't realize that he wasn't part of those conversations with me telling the story. So I had to tell him what exactly happened.
3: Now the next day, this was all over the news.
1: Oh yeah, that night the local news, one of the local news stations, showed up and they did a story. And I saw, I think, the local paper was there that night, and they it was so it was on the paper, but it was also broadcast that night on the news. And then more reporters showed up to get an interview, so it was a part of the news cycle for at least twenty-four to forty-eight hours. In addition, because of the situation with the baby the police were doing regular updates and so they were doing press conferences to they were actually appealing to the public anyone knew anything about the whereabouts of the mother of the baby or knew anything that could lead them to in their case and so they were doing for like 24 hours they were doing regular press conference it was in the news for a while so the next morning i'm going to work And the hospital that the police took him to, because here's another part of the story is like they had called for the, an ambulance to show up to take the baby to the hospital and the ambulance never showed up. So they ended up taking him. Once the other police officers showed up, they uh, those, the original two took him to the local hospital, which was just two blocks away. So I knew exactly where they had taken him, which was just, two blocks north of where we lived at the time. So that morning as I'm going to work, I, I had a change of mind, and I thought, I'm going to go to the hospital. I'm going to see if I can find out any information about the baby and see what what's happened to him. As I go in, I go to the information desk, and the attendant says to me, he's like, how can I help you? And I said, I'm, I'm here to see a baby that was brought in last night. And this, she said, um, are you are you family? And I said, no. And she said, I'm sorry that only family are allowed. So, well, he doesn't have any family. I, I'm, I found him. I, he was found last night. And she said, I'm sorry, but, but you know, only family are allowed in. And so to me, that was the end of the story. But yet I still wanted to find out more. I had um, quite a few friends that were, had experience in foster care or adoptive care that I worked with some of my colleagues. So they were telling me what usually happens in situations like this. And they also recommended that I contact the pediatric social worker at the hospital to see if I could find out more information about where he might be and what condition he might be in. So I took that and it took me a little while, probably took me about a day to locate the pediatric social worker. She was very annoyed with me when I found like, got her. And she asked, how did you get, how'd you get this number? How did you find me? <laughs> and I said, well, you know, I was just persistent until I could find you and you actually answered the phone. And so I, I told her who I was. And I said, I'm just calling to see if I can get, find out how the baby's doing. She said, well, you know, I, I can't share any information with you. I said, well, you don't have to share anything about you know where he might be, but you just how is he doing? And she said, um, I can tell you that he's, he's healthy and he's doing okay.
3: Good. Well, that's what you wanted to know anyway.
1: That was all it was. And I go on my way and thinking it's the end of the story. So about six weeks later, I get a call from the attorney with the Administration for Children, Children's Services, the, the child welfare agency in New York City. She said, I've been looking for you and I would like for you to testify. In court, I said, "For what?" She said, "Well, um, the baby you found. There's no one. There's no biological relatives that come forward, but we're proceeding with terminating the biological parental rights so the baby can be free for adoption." And she said, "Your testimony will help aid our case in building that, so we will be able to, so we can move forward with um, terminating the the parental rights." And so I said, "Sure." she she actually sent me a subpoena to to come to court, and it was a few, just a few days later. so I go into court and I meet the attorney and they, actually there's three attorneys there's the attorney for the administration of children's services there's a, a legal aid attorney and there's an, an attorney for the foster care agency and they tell me that she said i'm i 'm so sorry that the it's been postponed. The judge postponed the hearing for uh, six more weeks because we didn't have all the paperwork in. Would you be able to come back in six weeks time? And they gave me the date and and I said, sure. And by this time it's the beginning of December. So I go back, I go back to that uh, family court in uh, early December. I had just started a new job. So I was going on my lunch break and I uh, go in and I'm, I go into the court and I'm thinking that I'm just telling my story and then I'll be on my way. And I'm going to tell the story, the circumstances of beating up to finding the baby. And then the judge asked me, she said, would you mind staying for the remainder of the hearing? And I'm thinking, I said, well, I've got to get back to work. She said, I said, I've got to get back to work if it's not going to take too long. And she smiles and she says, well, it won't. And sure enough, it didn't. The two police officers that showed up that night provided their testimony of what had happened when they showed up on the scene and found found the baby. So they told their story and two minutes later it's over and the judge is addressing me again and she says, Mr. Stewart, I just want to let you know what's happening here. In situations where we have an abandoned baby, we want to place that baby in pre-adoptive foster care as quickly as possible. And in my head, I'm thinking, well, that makes a lot of sense. And then the next thing out of her mouth was, "Would you be interested in adopting this baby?" <laughs> and of course, all eyes are were on me in the court, and I think mouths were dropped. <laughs> and and I I pause for a second, and I say. Yes, but I don't think it's that easy. And she said, with a smile and a little chuckle, well, it can be. If you're interested in adopting this baby, you need to show up in the next hearing and state your intention. The next thing I know, she is issuing all kinds of court orders, left and right, and I'm not sure what's happening. (laughs) She's setting up a home visit for Mr. Stewart to visit the baby and, and, a, and a start beginning an expedited home study and beginning the fingerprinting process and all this. Like, I'm, I, I'm, I, I don't know what's happening.
3: This just seems so, so unusual. I mean, obviously, yes, you want a baby to have a home. But did she base her offer to you just on her trust that she's a good judge of character? And that you would be a good place for the baby to go?
1: Well, that's a very good question. And we didn't get that question answered for a couple of years.
3: All right. We'll we'll get to that part then.
1: We'll get to that part. And (laughs) then we got more clarity 10 years later. Okay. So we did not know what prompted her to ask that question. She didn't know me. I mean, I, I'm sure that background check had been done by the police and everyone else um, that night. I'm sure that's why they were taking their time in interviewing me. I'm sure they were doing a background check on that night. But um, I don't. I mean, I, I don't know. I, I mean, I didn't know at the time what prompted her to ask that question. It caught everyone by surprise. I mean, not just me, but everyone that was involved. To the attor- the attorneys. Um, I guess everyone but the judge.
3: <laughs> so you left there and called Pete.
1: So I left. <laughs> yeah, I left court, and you know, once again, I'm, I'm going back to work. I go into the train station. There's a payphone on the platform, so I'm I <laughs> have a quarter in my pocket again, and I call Pete and I said, "You'll never get guess what the judge just asked me." And I said, she asked if I would be interested in adopting this baby. And he said, what? (laughs) And he was in disbelief. And at the same time, uh, my train was coming in. So I said, I can't talk. And I just hung up the phone.
3: (laughs) It seems you have a history of doing that.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I guess I (laughs) do.
3: Leaving Pete on the other end to wonder, okay, (laughs) now what's happening? (laughs) So you guys had some conversations about this.
1: Yes, we did. Um, we had some in-depth, um, heated conversations that lasted a, a week or so. and you know, in my mind, I'm thinking, this judge is offering this baby. if this baby's a gift. How can we say no to this gift? That's what I I just kept thinking is like I, I think it's meant to be. I think this is something that we should do. And Pete wasn't so sure about that.
3: During that period, Danny and Pete obviously had very different opinions about what they should do. I wanted to get Pete's perspective on those heated discussions.
0: When Danny went to court to testify. They were starting the process of the lawyer needed to, needed Danny to testify to free the baby up for adoption. Um, and he called me after the judge asked him if he wanted to adopt the baby from a pay phone on another subway station at another subway station. And I was at work and he said, you're never going to believe this. The judge asked if I wanted to adopt the baby. And I instantly said, no, 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 no. Go back there right now and tell her you misspoke. My initial reaction was just completely fear-based. His train was roaring into the station at the time. And he said, I got to get back to work. And he got on his train and we didn't get a chance to discuss it again until that night. I just sort of said, how? He, after he told me everything that happened in court in detail, I said, how could you just say yes without consulting me? I said, we're not ready to have a baby. We don't have We had a roommate. We lived in a small one bedroom with a roommate behind a partition in the living room. We had no money. We were in debt. Uh, we didn't have a space or the resources for baby. And I was just sort of flabbergasted, I guess, if, if, for lack of a better word, that he would even think that this was a possibility. So he just said, what was I supposed to say? You know, they were all looking at me in the court courtroom. And I said, well, how about, I'll, I'll let me talk it over with my partner. I'll get back to you. And he said, well, I'm talking about it with you now. I'm like, yeah, but you already said yes. So I, he was seeing this as a gift and I was seeing this as something that was going to upend our lives completely. And so my reaction was all from being scared to death about what this was going to do to our lives and how how, are we, how would we ever be able to do this? So our discussions went on for a few nights and at one point Danny just said, you know, this is a gift. We can't pass up with this opportunity. We can make this work. I know we can make this work. We will make this work. And the more he said that, the more angry I got because I feel like he wasn't listening to me and my concerns. And he just said one night, I think I'm going to go ahead and do this whether you're on board or not. And I said, so you're choosing a baby over our relationship? He said, no, I would really love for you to do this with me. But I understand if you're not ready and you're not there yet, that's where you're at. And I said something really sort of mean and snarky. I said, well, good luck being a single parent in New York City. And I, for like the second or third night in a row, I went out and, to the cold December air in New York, and I just went for a long walks. And there was always a part of me that knew he was right. There was always a part of me that really wanted to do this so bad. But I was giving over to the fear, really, it was consuming me, it was overwhelming me, all the negative things that could happen. Who are we to think we can be this baby's parents? It was sort of like, we can't provide for him. Who are we to think that?
3: And back to Danny.
0: Yeah, it was, the the conversations
1: were heated. I mean, he would, he was angry that I had said yes. And he was thinking that I wasn't being rational um, in making uh, a decision unilaterally without consulting him well there's a little bit of basis to that (laughs) yeah no he wasn't wrong he wasn't wrong you
3: you finally got pete to come with you on a visit was that a little bit calculated on your part Hmm. (laughs) to kind of to help
1: persuade him i I, I was hoping that he would come around and I'm, i'm pretty patient and i just kept reiterating that this was a gift and we can't say no, but I, I thought that he just needed time and space to be able to process it and that he would eventually come around. So, you know, they had set up the visit for me to go see the baby in the foster family he had been placed with. And what was unbeknownst to us at the time, that um, he was placed there the next day after he was found. So he had been with this foster family for three, by this time, over three months, almost three and a half months. And so we go, uh, we meet the foster care worker to do this home visit there. On the way there, Pete and I had a conversation and I said, Pete, I said, you know, once he agreed to go with me and that was all he was going to do, he was just going to go with me. On this. And I, one of the things I also kept telling him, uh, because this is what everyone else was telling us, was that even if we were pursuing adoption and it wasn't going to happen overnight, there's a process. It just it takes six to nine months for you to get the background check, to get a home study done, to have clearance to happen. And you have to go through parenting classes, there's 10 weeks of parenting classes that happen. And so all of everyone was telling us, the foster care workers were telling us, my friends uh, that had experience in foster care were telling us this whole thing. And this is what I told Pete. It's like, well, let's just take it one step at a time. So this first step, we're just going to go visit the baby. We can decide. We don't, we're not making a permanent decision right now. So the first decision, we're just going to go visit the baby. And, you know, once he agreed with me, the conversation on the way there, which to me was very important, and that conversation was that um, no matter what condition the baby is in, no matter what the placement, the home he's in right now, we cannot want to move forward with this to save this child. That's not a good enough reason. We have to want to do this because we want to be his parents. Of course, Pete just saying yes, yes, yes. He's yesing me because he hadn't fully, you know, wasn't fully on board yet. So when we go to the home, we quickly realized he wasn't in the best con- condition. But you know, we we go there. We actually had to wait because the, uh, the the foster care mother was at a visit. The baby had been had been sick, and so she was at the clinic with him and so we waited a few minutes before they got there and when they got there um, the foster care mother put the baby in a almost like a car seat but it wasn't a car seat but it was similar to that on the floor and she and the foster uh, and the foster care worker went to another room to have a conversation and we're just there with the baby and she says the foster care workers like would you like to?" would you like to hold him? And I said, sure. And so she puts him in my arms and he had the biggest eyes. I mean, his, he, it's just, that's what I remembered from that first night that he had just very big, wide eyes. And I, I just noted that his eyes were just, it it seemed to be like so curious. And also he seemed scared at the same time. So I'm, you know, I'm holding him we had brought a Polaroid camera. <laughs> so I, I, Pete took a photo of me holding the baby. And then I just said, here, uh, <laughs> to, you know, your turn. And, I, and then I snapped a photo of him holding the baby.
3: I really wanted to know how Pete felt holding that baby
0: for the first time. We went and Danny held the baby first and that was really, really beautiful because, you know, you're just sort of witnessing this person who found this little baby in his arms and, and Danny just looked at him and said, it's um, like three months later, he said, hey, remember me? It was just beautiful. It was just, I, my heart just like, I melted. And then Danny held up the baby to me and said, your turn. And I sort of reflexively took him, even though I didn't want to hold him because I kind of felt that if I held him, the bond would form. And I think Danny kind of knew that too. So I held the baby and the baby instantly put his hand around my, his entire hand around my finger. And I just looked down at him and he was just looking up at me. I mean, the baby was just, the baby did not take his eyes off of us. Like we did not take our eyes off of him in that visit. It was just almost like he was saying, I'm your son, just realize it already. I just turned to Danny after he was in my arms for a few moments, and I just said, this is our boy. You know, I sort of made a decision that we will be able to figure it out. We will be able to make it work. We'll, we'll do what most parents have to do, figure, figure out how to bring a child into their lives.
3: So Danny and Pete were finally in agreement to move ahead with the adoption. Here's Danny with what happened next.
1: So the next court hearing was scheduled, it was about a week later after the visit. It was at that time, by now it's December 20th, that both Pete and I show up. Now this is Pete's first time in court there. The judge sees us and she addresses us, she said, uh, gentlemen, I, I hope you're here for the reason I think that you're here, and we we nodded, and she said, "Are you ready to state your intentions?" And we said, "Yes." And are you stating your intentions that you would like to adopt this baby? And we said, "Yes." <laughs> she looks down at her calendar. And she says, "Hmm, holidays are coming up. Would you like to have the baby for a visit for the holidays? And we just nodded and said, yes. (laughs) Then she said, okay. Uh, And then she addressed the foster care agency. She said, okay, have the baby ready for Mr. Stewart and Mr. Mercurio to pick up the baby in two days. And so December 22nd, the morning of December 22nd, we made arrangements to go there to pick up the baby. So all of our notions, all of our thinking that it was going to be six to nine months before we replaced this baby, all were condensed to forty-eight hours.
3: Anybody else gets at least nine months to prepare for a baby to arrive. Yes,
1: yes. <laughs>
3: and you got two days.
1: Yes, it was it was unbelievable. Once again. Uh, this judge doing something unbelievable and uh, unexpected. She uh, had arranged for us to be given the baby. So thankfully Pete's family lived in Northern New Jersey, not far from Manhattan. So we get on the phone with them and let them know what's happened. <laughs> and they just jump into action and by everything that could ever possibly need for a new baby. So we actually got a hand-me-down crib, but um, everything else they went out to purchase. So on the morning that we went to go pick up the baby on December 22nd, they all came over to our small little apartment and transformed it into a nursery. So it was really unrecognizable when we got back to that apartment after picking him up. They just provided every possible thing that we needed. And it was just really wonderful. And I don't, I don't know if we would have been able to do it. I'm sure we would have found a way, but they just um, were amazing and how generous that they were. So we go that Friday morning to pick up the baby. We're there just a little while. I mean, just long enough for the nurse to check the baby. When she opened the diaper, it's, It's at that point that we knew exactly what condition he was in. And uh, when I mentioned earlier that he was not in a good place, he had a diaper rash from his belly button all the way down to the, around to the small of his back. It seemed like that they never changed his diaper. And so he was just sitting in the diaper. It also seemed like that, that he was never picked up. Or picked up very, very infrequently because he was very uh, very scared and guarded and stiff when we held him. I mean, we took him when we took him on. So the nurse was there. So she she sees the diaper rash. She gives us some ointment and tells us how to care for it. Make sure that we can be able to change a diaper. (laughs) All right, and then we gave him this first feeding, and then she says, "Okay, you're on your way. Yeah, you're on your own now." We go home and yeah, um, we are there in the apartment that night, the three of us alone for the first time. And it was pretty, uh, it was just the whole thing has been unbelievable, but it was really unbelievable that here we were, the three of us with this baby. He had fallen asleep on one of us. We were on the couch and he, and we just kind of looked at one another and just with disbelief of what had happened and what had transpired in such a short period of time. Did the baby have a name yet? Yeah, this is interesting. He had a name, and the name that was given to him was a combination, of a name that was borrowed. They, they named him Daniel Ace Doe. So I think the police officers named him Daniel. And then the hospital, knowing that he was found on the ACE line, named him Ace. And then because he didn't have a last name, he had Doe. So his official last name was Daniel Ace Doe until, until his adoption was finalized two years later. But, I mean, we, we named him Kevin. That was the name that we had picked out. And that... Um, that was a story, another pretty miraculous story you know, of itself. On our way home after having the visit with Kevin, uh, well, with the baby, and when he was in that foster family, Pete asked me, Have you thought about a name for the baby? And I said, Well, I've always liked the name Devin, D-E-V-I-N." He said, Wow, just one letter off. It's like, i I like the name Kevin, and he said, Let me tell you why. And he told me the story of prior to him uh, Pete being born, his parents had given birth to a stillborn, but that stillborn had been named Kevin. so Pete had always thought that this baby, Kevin, that his parents had was almost like a guardian angel in his life. And the the name Kevin had, had significance for him because he had, in various points in his life, a person by the name of Kevin had come into his life for a brief amount of time and had changed it and had quickly disappeared. So we always felt like this character, Kevin, was a guardian angel. So once he told me the story of of the significance of this name I said absolutely his name should be Kevin. So a year after uh, we found Kevin, 9-11 happened, and that put a delay on everything because family court, Manhattan family court is close to ground zero. So everything was on delay for many months. And I think that that was a big reason why, why the, uh, the adoption took two years. At two years, and it was almost two years to the date that we go back into family court to uh, make his adoption finalized, it was at that moment, Pete asked the judge, Your Honor, whatever asked, prompted you to ask Danny that question about if he was interested in adopting this baby? And she said, I had a hunch. Was I wrong? So I mean we said no of course not. <laughs> but we didn't know the full story either. There was actually more to that um, that we learned when we had our wedding.
3: Well let's let's talk about that. This is this is now at this point Kevin is 10 when that happened.
1: Kevin was 10 years old when same-sex marriage was legal in New York state. One morning, I think, you know, actually the the night that that the, the, the state assembly was passing the vote in New York state. We were up watching it on the, the political channel. And because we had a friend that was a state assembly for Staten Island at the time. So we were very curious about you know, how it was going. So the three of us, Kevin, Pete and I were watching it that night. And so when it passed, we cheered. And I think it was the next day or maybe a couple days later, Pete was walking Kevin to school and he asked Kevin, Do you, he said, "Do you think you think your dad and I should get married?" And Kevin said, "Sure, I guess, yeah." <laughs> and and I think Kevin in his mind was had started to see uh, same-sex marriages being performed by judges. So he asked, um, don't judges perform weddings?" And he said, "Yeah." And then he asked, would you be interested in meeting the judge who finalized your adoption? And he, Kevin said, yeah. And then he ran off into school. So Pete went in and called Manhattan Family Court. Actually, he no, he, he sent an email to Manhattan Family Court, to the generic email, and got a response like a couple hours later. He was asking if the judge who had performed. The adoption had proceeded over that, would, would be available and would be interested in doing our wedding ceremony. Pete got a response two hours later that the judge definitely remembered us and would be definitely interested and would like to set up a time for us to meet. And then we set a date. Uh, we actually set the date on, we wanted it, <laughs> we wanted it to coincide to the anniversary we, were, we already celebrated, uh, which is July 13th. So we decided on July thirteenth, twenty twelve, would be the date that we would get married. And so we we met with the judge, you know, probably a month or so before. She wanted to, you know, talk with us about what we were wanting and what we were thinking about, and just to catch up also because it had been eight years since we were in court together. So she was interested in knowing about Kevin and knowing about what his interests were. And she was also interested in, you know, knowing how we were doing. It was at that point we asked her, you know, we wanted just to get more information about, you know, that her ability to expedite the process. And what was more behind that question and asking me, because it was still burning in the back of our mind, but, you know, what was behind that hunch, By this time, she had been a family court judge for over 30 years and she was about to retire. And she told us, she's like, you caught me just in the right time because I'm, I'm, I'm retiring in a few months. And she said, all babies need to have some connection. They need to have, they need to have that with somebody. And you were the only connection that this baby had. And so I went on that. And then she also told us at the time she was a part, she was leading a pilot project in New York State to expedite placement for babies that had been abandoned so they would not languish and linger in foster care for years and years before they were adopted. So she had the power and the authority to expedite the whole process of adoption. So that is the reason also that she was able to do what she did. She could cut through bureaucratic red tape by deciding that she was going to place the baby with us and in the time manner that she would, that she did. And she, so it didn't take six to nine months. We still had to do all those process. Not that it didn't happen, but we, because we still had to go through all the other things, but she was able to place him with us.
3: She has to look at that as one of the crowning achievements of her career as a judge I mean, I'm sure she did a lot of other things as well, but what a story.
1: She's become a part of our extended family, and we've kept in touch with her through the years. She has remained in, in contact with us, and she emails us from time to time. She came to Kevin's graduation ceremony we held, and we send her an annual newsletter and holiday card every year, and she sends us one back. So we, we keep in touch, and uh, we've always expressed our gratitude for her for changing our lives. And, and, and she said, well,
3: I was just doing my job. Is, how old is Kevin now, and what's, what's he like?
1: Kevin is 21. He is a senior in school. He is going to a small liberal arts school. He's, studying, he's a dual major in both mathematics and computer science. He really loves math, and I think over the last year he has shifted more to computer science. But um, those are his passions. The other passion is ultimate frisbee. He is one of the co-captains on his team in school, so he's not only does he play it through his school team. This past summer, he was on two teams in the in Philadelphia where he played on club teams. And so he, you know, he, he was playing a lot of ultimate. And so he really loves that.
0: And
3: I understand he's run some marathons as well.
1: Yes. Uh, this is another thing. I and mean, he, he loves to challenge himself. So one challenge he had, um, and this started right after he graduated from high school. He told us, so I'm going to run in a half marathon. It's called the wakapuko wakapuko it's uh, in the Rockaways, they have a half marathon, and he ran it, I think it was a day before he was started his freshman year in college. Then he did another one in Yonkers, and then he did his sophomore year. He did the Chicago Marathon. He registered and was got into that. So he did the Chicago Marathon, and then a month later, he did the Philadelphia Marathon. He's done a few other ones that are, I don't even know, I wouldn't call them a marathon, them like super marathons where he did this four by four by four. So, you run four miles every four hours for 48 hours. And it's a lot. It's a, it's a challenge he did. Yeah. So, he he likes to set a challenge for himself and a goal. And he, he wants to see how far he can push himself.
3: Yeah. That's awesome. Okay. One thing I'm wondering have you guys ever considered doing like a DNA kit, like 23andMe, to see if you can find any of his biological relatives? Does he have any interest in that at
1: all? We have done that. In 2013, we did 23andMe. We three, the three of us did. You know, we had always guessed about what his ancestry or lineage was, but it was never known at all what that was. I mean, I I had guessed. Had made a guess, but when we did the 23andMe, it's now it's more refined. Meaning they've been able to be more specific. Back then they were able to provide they would say Oceanic, Southeast Asian, and you know possibly Tongan or Samoan. Since then it's been further refined, and they know pretty much exactly that he is American, American Samoan but also broad, more broadly geographically in the uh, Pacific, you know, island. So he's definitely an island boy. Mm-hmm. And that was always my guess. It was like, you know, I, looking at his features, looking at his coloring, he always seemed to me to be Samoan. He was always big for his age, tall, skin coloring. And so I thought, you know, he's got to be an island. He's got to be from the island somewhere. <laughs> And sure enough, that's that's where he's from. And as far as like locating any biological relatives, now we have even very recently over the last few months, I've had conversations with him about this, and saying you know we support him and wanting to go down that journey in locating any biological relatives. We told him it would not diminish what we have as a family. It would not diminish the love that we have. It would not impinge upon the family that we have together. If there's others in your life that, that you can find, that you can find connection, we support that. And he said, you know, maybe someday, but I'm not ready right now. I'm not wanting to do that, but he knows that that option is available. And through 23andMe, I mean, his profile is private, so no one would be able to find him if there were biological relatives. But we kind of suspect that there are um, some that are out there, but he's just not ready to start that journey.
3: you, you got to be ready for that, for sure.
1: We wanted to give him permission and thinking that it's not going to take away or wouldn't. It wouldn't be it wouldn't be anything against us. So we wouldn't feel bad or we our feelings wouldn't be hurt at all if he wanted to do that. if he finds others in his life that can help him answer questions that he may have or that he can expand love for him, and we support that process for him.
3: you know, it's just it's amazing how the tiniest little turn of events, you know that brief moment of noticing the baby while you were rushing out of the subway, can just change your life so profoundly. Do
1: you ever go back to that spot? All the time. Yeah, and for years, even when Kevin was an infant and older, that was the closest station to where we lived. So we were going through it all the time, and it was it became known as Kevin's Corner or Kevin's Spot. That's just like, and so we would we embraced it, it was like this is the place where we found each other. This is the place where we became a family.
3: You know, one thing that struck me about this story, before they agreed to take Kevin and Pete was saying they shouldn't do it, one of his objections was, who are we to think we can do this? We have no skills at being parents. But what they did have was compassion. The day-to-day stuff you can learn, how to change a diaper, checking that the bathwater isn't too hot or too cold, those things are teachable. But when you have two people who have so much love to give, That makes just about anything possible. And now it's obvious that they did a really great job of parenting with Kevin. And Pete wrote a book about this. It's a children's book, a large hardcover with great illustrations on each page, and it tells the story in a way that makes it easy for kids to understand and enjoy. If you know a family who has adopted children, this is a great gift. I'll have a link to that in the show notes for this episode. And also in the show notes, you'll see pictures of Danny and Pete on that first visit when they held Kevin for the first time, as well as more recent family photos where Kevin is the tallest one in the picture. All of that is at whatwasthatlike.com slash 96. But before that book was beautifully illustrated and published, the first version was just put together by Pete at home so that Kevin could hear about his story from a very young age. And coming up at the end of this episode, in today's listener story, you'll hear about what happened with that.
4: Hi, Scott. My name's Justin, and I just want to say that I enjoy your show immensely. I'll admit that when I first checked out your episode list, my first reaction was that they were going to be maybe sensationalist and morbidly interesting. But I was very wrong. After diving into your show, I've been amazed and inspired by some of these stories. I love that you have found people that have both experienced crazy, traumatic events, but have then, despite of, and also using them, gone on to lead incredible, courageous, and admirable lives, usually also guiding others towards the better lives they seek. What you bring to listeners is what I wish our mainstream media and news outlets would bring more of to the public. It's easy to feel a level of despair or at the very least a pessimistic view of humans when you just skim the headlines or even read the articles of the world's events the media chooses to present to us. But through your curiosity and effort, your show presents events with human depth and you focus just as much, if not more, on the positives of the people, their experiences, and their lives after I was just telling my wife about the grizzly attack and plane crash episodes the other day, and she's become a listener as well. Please keep up your great work. Thanks. Bye.
3: And if you have any comments about the podcast, this is your invitation. That's right. This is me personally inviting you to call in and leave a message. The podcast voicemail line is 727-386-9468. And you can call anytime, night or day, and leave me a message. I'd love to hear from you. And just a quick mention, if you follow me on Instagram, that may be no more. I got a notice from Instagram that my account has been disabled because it violated their terms. I looked at their terms and can't see anything listed there that I've violated, but that's unfortunately the way it is sometimes. They don't give you specifics, so you can't really argue with them. As I record this, I'm trying to get it resolved, but I may not be on Instagram anymore. And this is exactly why I have plans to get the podcast community off of Facebook. It's too easy to build a nice big community and then just have it canceled. I have over 10,000 followers on Instagram, so I hope it gets fixed. But if you don't see me on there anymore, you know why. But enough of that silliness. Let's get on to today's listener story. This is going to be Danny again, talking about when Kevin gradually learned about how he was found and how his story affected someone else. Stay safe, have a great holiday season, and I'll see you in two weeks for the last episode of 2021 coming out on New Year's Eve.
1: We wanted to always frame his um, story in and, and as a possible positive light that we could, given the circumstances of being abandoned, that we didn't want it to be focused on that he was left or he was abandoned, but that he was found and that we found each other. And so we wanted it to be a source of, I mean, we always wanted him to know his story. We never hid anything from him. So he knew from the earliest times about the creation of our family and how that all happened. We would even tell them like bedtime stories that we uh, Pete put together a very rudimentary picture book of telling the story of how we became a family. It was just like clip art and telling the story in the in the voices of trains. So it was they were animated trains that told the story of Danny and carrying the uh, Clara the C train carrying Danny down the subway line to the station and to find baby Kevin, using all of our names and telling it in a very simple way, the story of how we became a family, that that's what we read to him for a few years um, when he was really young, probably when he was about five, I'd say. he He finally clicked that this story, even using all of our real names and even going through the station, it happened on one night, where he was sitting on the couch and he had the book in his hands and he wanted each of us to sit on either side of him and he wanted us to read the story to him. And of course you know, it was a frequent bedtime story we would read. So we're reading it. At the very end, he pauses. He said, is this about me? And we pause for a second. It's like, where is this going to go? And we say, yes, this is your story. This is how we became a family. And he had this big grin on his face. and He was like smiling. Let's let's read it again. (laughs) It took on a different meaning for him. And because of that, he then took it into school to to show and tell. And he told this story with such pride. I I think it was probably like in second grade, first or second grade that this happened. uh, We get a call from one of the, the parents that says, you know, your son brought in a book about... Um, your family you know, share your family's story. And we're thinking it's going to be bad news. It's something like this parent is going to have a very strong reaction, negative reaction. And she said, I just want to let you know that this had a really big impact on my daughter. She said, our daughter is adopted and she's been struggling with that. And that Kevin was so comfortable and so confident and so happy and had such pride about being adopted and about his story. It's helped my daughter feel better about her being adopted and that she has a friend that's also adopted and that she can talk about this with. And so I was like, "What well, just a wonderful thing. Like, what a gift that is.
2: Thanks again for listening to True Crime by Indie Drop-In Network. If you would like to nominate a true crime podcast to be featured, just send me a tweet at Indie Drop-In. I'd also love to hear if one of our featured podcasts is now your favorite show. Indie Drop-In survives off ad revenue and listener donations. If you would like to contribute, please consider buying me a coffee. You can go to buymeacoffee.com forward slash Indie Drop-In. If you look at the very bottom of the episode description, I put a link in there to make it really easy. Indie Drop In has many other shows that you also might like. Just go to indiedropin.com. All right, see you next week.